Well, good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks. So glad to be able to worship with you this morning. Many of you know that our focus in the year of 2022 as a church has been to live out what it means to be better together, that God has designed His people, the church, to be better together. And I think one of my greatest joys as a pastor is seeing that lived out. I knew from the very beginning that the idea of being better together wouldn't be about creating something that doesn't currently exist at the Oaks, but really just strengthening a commitment that I feel like our church has had since day one, that God has created us uh, not just as a church to be an event to attend, but a community to belong to. And, I, and this past week, I got to experience that firsthand whenever I was, you know, walking into the Madison Place coffee shop, and I look around at 7.30 in the morning, and I see groups of people from the Oaks all over the place who are, you know, have, have God's Word open, they're studying God's Word together, they're encouraging one another. One of my greatest joys as a pastor is being able to see people in our church building one another up. And so I want to encourage you, keep doing that. Uh, that is one of the things that makes what we do in this room on a Sunday morning an overflow of what God is doing in your life throughout the week. Um, that the biblical community that, that you are being faithful by God's grace to cultivate is the reason that we can come here, that we can serve one another, that we can welcome the world that is outside of these doors and to say the gospel is good news. Look, look at what it has done in our lives. Uh, so I wanted to encourage you in that way, and I'm grateful that I get to be better together alongside you, Oaks Church. Go ahead and find Romans chapter 8. We're going to be continuing our study in the book of Romans, and specifically today, talking about identity. Now, you know that identity theft is a, a pretty common problem. If it's ever happened to you, you know that it can be either costly or at the very least inconvenient. This is the reason that banks have worked really hard to develop ways to track the potential of identity theft. And, and so the bank that you bank with has created a profile for you. They have software that has learned the actions that are associated with your identity, where you spend money, how regularly you spend money, where you spend money at, the amount that you spend whenever you spend money in different places. And they monitor all of those activities so that the minute that there are actions taking place that are not in a line with the identity that is in your profile, that they can freeze that card and prevent something tragic potentially from happening. Well, because I know those things to be true, it should have been no surprise to me when after we were in Miami for only 12 hours on our mission trip, I got a notification that my card was declined, uh, that my card was in fact frozen. And so this is uh, a, a big issue. Now, why did that happen? Because my profile and the identity that I have has, associ has actions associated with it that tell my bank that I shop in Ohio, not Miami, Florida. My bank knows that an average transaction with my church card might be 10 or $20, grabbing coffee with somebody, taking somebody out to lunch. But whenever we spent over $600 at Target to prepare community hygiene and care bags, you know, and we're like dropping tons of money on shampoo and deodorant, PNC is like, what is going on here? This is an unusual transaction. The software that tracks our identity, as, as crazy as it might be, reveals a very simple truth. Who you are shapes how you live. Who you are, your identity, 
shapes how you live. So the question this morning, whenever we come to Romans chapter 8, is who are you? Who do you think you are? You see, the answer to that question will impact much more than the amount of money that you spend. Your answer to that question will have a profound impact on your relationships, the way that you interact with other people, the way that you view yourself, and most importantly, the way that you relate to God. How do you see yourself? We live in a culture where most people find their identity in maybe the amount of followers they have on Instagram. Maybe they are a sum of their personal accomplishments or maybe the highest level of education that they received. Some people find their identity in what they drive to work or where they go when they are at work, where they live, how much they can bench press, you name it. We find our identity in all these different places, our relationship status, what our parents think of us. And yet, there is a greater identity to be found in Romans chapter 8. That Paul is going to say, because of your newfound relationship with God, if you have trusted in Christ, you are called a child of God. If you were to summarize verses 12 through 17, I think it would look something like this. That you now are a child of God because the indwelling of the Holy Spirit gives you a new identity. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit gives us a new identity. We are children of God the Father and co-heirs with Christ the Son. Now, I can't shake the Trinitarian nature of our new identity. We see it fleshed out right here. The Holy Spirit indwelling in you has now created a new relationship between you and God the Father because you are co-heirs with Christ the Son. But I also want, as we work through this passage, for you to really believe this. For this truth of your identity to truly, that the Holy Spirit would weave this into the fabric of your soul, that you would see that God has done this in his kindness and in his grace, that back in the book of Genesis, when God told Abraham to count the stars, that they would be as numerous as his people one day, that you in God's providence were numbered among them. Whenever he scooped his hand down in the dirt And that God said, such will my people be one day, that you were numbered among them, that God is loving and gracious and has gone to great lengths to call you his child through what his own son would do. This morning, I I want to make the case that the way you view God, specifically the fatherhood of God, is one of the most important aspects of Christianity. J.I. Packer, uh, a famous theologian in his book, Knowing God, says this, and you should read the chapter of his book called Sons of God if you read one thing over the course of the next month that is so good. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. Do you know God as Father? If you don't right now, my prayer is that you would. If you know him by that name in title, it's my desire that through our time together that you would have your entire outlook on life shaped by that reality. So as we work through these verses 12 through 17, we're going to look at three aspects of this new identity. Let me read 12 through 17, and then we'll dive in. 
Verse 12 says this, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Here we're going to see three aspects of our new identity. The first aspect is going to be new responsibilities. The second aspect is going to be new relationships. The third will be new rights that we have as children of God. The first aspect we see is new responsibilities in verses 12 through 13. Now, whenever you get to verse 12, you see the words, so then. That's how Paul is beginning this verse to tell us that he is building on what he has already said. In the eight chapters leading up to this, absolutely. But specifically in verses 1 through 11, he is creating this understanding of who we are now in God. Because in verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that you are free from the law of sin and death, and now you are able to walk in God's commands in the spirit of life. And so verses 1 through 8 are great because we learn that we are forgiven through Christ for our past sins. And now we can live a new life in obedience to God. But the tension we feel at the end of verse 8 is how. How do we carry out God's commands? How do we actually do this? And that leads to what Paul says in verses 9 through 11. He says that now you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that your ability to obey comes from the Holy Spirit now dwelling within you. This is truly possible. And so then we're left wondering, whenever we get to the end of verse 11, what, is, what does that mean that my relationship with God is like? Because there are a lot of people that have to obey other people, right? There are a lot of people that are called to obey other people, students, are called to obey their professors, their teachers, turn in the assignments that they assign, or you're supposed to. A, an employee is called to obey what their boss gives them as tasks for work. And yet, Paul wants us to understand that the way we relate to God is not employee-boss. It's not uh, just a, a student and a teacher. No, we now relate to God as children relate to their father. We obey, yes, because we trust him, because we know his plans are good, that his design for our life leads to not only his glory, but also our flourishing. So Paul then says, so then, brothers, let me remind you of this truth. We're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. If you were to iron out that sentence to make it a little less wooden, you could simply read it in this way. We are not debtors to the flesh. He says we are debtors not to the flesh. What he is saying is you no longer live in debt to the flesh to do what, what sin once commanded you to do. Romans 6 says that you are no longer sin's master to do what it wants you to do. He says you're no longer in debt to live in sin. You're not obligated to continue to pursue those desires that lead to death. You're not indebted to the flesh anymore 
And if you've ever had a great debt, you know that it is not simply an accounting term. You know that there's a feeling associated with it. You know that there's a weight that hangs over your head whenever you know that there is a giant bill that you cannot pay. And what Paul is saying is Christ has paid this in full. You are no longer a debtor to the flesh because Christ took on flesh and died in your place. So go and live free of this sin. He says you're not a debtor to the flesh. So don't live according to the flesh, that it would dictate the way that you treat other people. Think about yourself. Indulge your desires. You now live according to the Spirit. A couple years ago, there was a young woman at the Oaks who had moved here straight after college. She moved to Cincinnati, and so I ask a question I normally ask whenever I meet people who first move here. I said, well, what brought you to Cincinnati? And she said, well, I had to be here. I'm like, okay, well, so this probably wasn't your top five list of, you know, places to live. And she began to explain her story, and she said, well, Whenever I was first starting my program in college, I received an offer from this company, and they said that they would pay my full tuition, which sounded amazing. No student debt? Like, absolutely. Who wouldn't want to do that? But she said the catch is that this company had branches all throughout the United States, and whenever you finished your college career and you graduated, since they paid your tuition for all four years, they could also tell you where you then had to live, the position that you have, the kind of responsibilities you would then have at that job, and for two years, she had to live wherever they wanted her to, work whatever job they had assigned to her at that branch, or she would get that entire tuition bill right back laid in her lap, and she would have to figure out how to pay it on her own. And she felt stuck. It's no surprise that after two years of doing that, she found another job, another place to live. She, she felt like she was having to make every decision, live completely according to that company. And Paul is saying here in verse 12, you no longer have to live according to the flesh. There was a time in which both by nature and by your own willful rebellion, every decision that you made was dictated by the flesh, living according to the flesh. And that hung over you, dictating every one of your decisions. But now in Christ, you are freed from that. You can now live in obedience to God because you have been released from that debt to the flesh. And Christ has set us free. I wonder if this morning there are those of you who know that Christ has paid in full that debt to the flesh, and yet you still find yourself cutting checks to the chains that once held you. You still find yourself, even though your lips now have been purchased by Christ, instead of just praising God and thanking Him for His provision, slandering other people, making judgmental comments toward other people, being harsh toward other people, submitting back to that yoke of slavery you've been delivered from. Your, your thoughts have been redeemed, purchased by the blood of Christ to set your mind on things above. Don't set your mind on things of the flesh. Don't indulge the lustful thoughts that creep in don't think critically of your brother or sister in Christ. Don't let jealousy rule you whenever discontentment comes. You're not in debt to that flesh anymore. You've been set free by the work of Christ to live in freedom. We can't believe that, that the freed Israelites after the Exodus would somehow long for the comfort of their chains in Egypt and yet, how often do we find ourselves seeking those things that we've been set free from and are completely forbidden? This is what Paul is getting at in verse 13. 
This is a matter of life and death. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Here here he's talking about not just physical death. He's saying, if you continue to live in patterns of sin, then this is evidence that you might not actually belong to God. That you, in fact, could be separated from God and on a path that will lead to eternal hell. Whenever you think about the passage that Kelsey read from 1 John, you're thinking, oh, like, this causes me to examine my heart. I still sin. What does this mean for me? And that's exactly what that passage is designed to do. And at the same time, give you assurance if you're saying, Lord, free me from a pattern of sin. I don't want to live like this anymore. God, take those habits that don't honor you and work in me something that produces growth over time so that I live for you and realize that I now have new responsibilities as your child. If you feel that, that's one of the ways that God confirms that you are a child of God. And if you look at your sin and you say, you know what, everything that I do is completely devoid of the Lordship of Christ and listening to his commands, then it might be a good check for you to look at verse 13 and say, maybe I am walking in the flesh. Maybe I'm not living in the spirit. Maybe I am on a path to death. Paul is not creating some sort of condition for your salvation in verse 13. He's not saying, okay, if you do this, then God will save you. That would be contradictory to what he just said in Romans 8.1, that because of what Christ did, you are saved. No, what he is saying is that the way that you pursue putting sin to death in your life reveals if the Holy Spirit is truly in you or not. He says, put to death the deeds of the flesh. How? How do we do that? By the Spirit. He says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. That's evidence of your salvation. It's the process of your sanctification, your growth in Christ, and it ultimately leads to your glorification that one day you will be in the presence of Christ and made completely new. Sometimes we think about this process of growth in the Christian life and we say, okay, well, am I responsible for this or is God responsible for this? And verse 13 tells us both, that you are commanded to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Your salvation, completely a work of God. Your sanctification, something that you are commanded to work out, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And yet, how are you able to do this? By the Spirit. God does this. God is doing this in you, working through you. It is this beautiful mystery in which God is providing everything we need, and yet we are completely responsible for making this our aim. Theologian John Murray says this, the believer's once for all death to the law and to sin does not free him from the necessity of mortifying sin, a a Puritan way to say killing sin in their life, in his members. It makes necessary and possible for him to do so. Christ died so that you would be dead to sin. And Christ now lives so that through the Holy Spirit you would live in him. The three most important words in this verse are by the Spirit. If you you try to put your sinful deeds to death apart from the Spirit, you know what's going to happen? You're going to be really discouraged. You're going to be really disappointed because you won't be able to. If you're trying to minister to others in that way, help others, guess what? You're going to be exhausted. 
you're going to be burned out. Or perhaps even worse, you could see some progress in your life. And then you become really prideful, thinking that in your own power and in your own strength, you are able to white-knuckle some obedience to put to death the deeds of the flesh on your own. Maybe you begin to, to have judgmental thoughts toward other Christians who aren't able to fix themselves like you were able to. And all of that leads you further away from knowing who you are as an adopted child of God. But you know what happens if you realize that change is only possible by the Spirit? A few things. First, I think that you'll begin to ask God to reveal sins in your life that make you more dependent upon the Spirit. That through your Christian community and other people speaking into your life and through your daily time in the Word, that you would humbly admit that you need help that only the Spirit could supply. I think another thing that will happen is that you will believe that the power to turn from sins is actually possible because now it is a work of the Holy Spirit. I think another thing that will take place in your life is that you will praise God whenever you see growth, whenever you see moments in your life where you're like, man, there hasn't, there hasn't been a two-month stretch that I can't remember that I wasn't overcome by anger and said something that I didn't regret. And, and by God's grace, I've done that. If you're living by the Spirit, then that leads to praise of God, not pride of self. I think another thing that will happen is whenever you begin living by the Spirit, you will realize you're not too perfect to open up to other people about your struggles and your need for help in the Christian life. You'll realize you're not too perfect. I think you'll also realize that you aren't too busy to help other people progress in their faith, that this is actually the most important work that you could devote yourself to on earth. And by living these truths out, the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to our lives. How can you put to death the deeds of the flesh? Because on the cross, Christ was put to death for your deeds in the flesh. How can you live in the Spirit? Because as verse 11 said last week, the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the grave now dwells in you to enable you to obey with great joy. It's possible for commands to be seen as a joyful privilege. I think sometimes it's hard for us to believe that. I think anytime, specifically in our culture, when we're given stuff to do, we're like, oh, this is like encroaching on my freedom or, or something that I truly want to do. And yet, whenever we read Psalm 1, we, we find that the law of God is a great delight. Whenever we see God's commands throughout Scripture, we find that this is actually something that is both for our good and God's glory. Is it possible for something that we are commanded to do to also be seen as a joyful privilege that we get to do? Yes, absolutely. As I was thinking about this this week, I was reminded of whenever I first turned 16 and I got my driver's license. And it wasn't long after I got my driver's license and I was able to drive on my own that my mom began to give me grocery lists and say, hey, I need you to go pick up these things. And here's the dry cleaning. I need you to take this across town. And here are a couple other errands I need you to do. I need you to run by the bank and do this. And I wasn't like, oh, are you kidding me? I gotta do all this stuff? No, I was like, absolutely, hand me the keys. Like, let's go. I was so excited. I saw it not only as a command to obey, but a joyful privilege to now carry out those commands. Why? Because I found myself driving a car that I couldn't afford to do what I was once unable to do. Isn't that like the Christian life? 
Whenever he says you were once dead in your sin, and now you have been given life, and you can proclaim this message of life to a world that doesn't know it yet. That once we only thought about ourselves, and now the Holy Spirit dwells within us, and he has given us spiritual gifts to build up the church and to serve those around us. This is a beautiful privilege that brings joy that we get to walk in step with God as we receive these new responsibilities. That as Ephesians 2.10 says, you were created in Christ Jesus to carry out. So as Christians, we say, yeah, hand us the keys, God. Where do you want us to go? We love the new responsibilities that we've been given as the people of God and as, as his adopted children. And this is where we realize that these commands to obey are not simply as, as those who are servants of God, but also as those who are sons of God, which leads to the next aspect of our new identity, new relationships. Look at verse 14 with me. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now here's how this works theologically, logically. We learned in Romans 6, Romans 5 and Romans 6, that the moment that you trusted in Christ, you were united with Christ, right? So, so you became one with Christ through that relationship. And Jesus Christ is the Son of God who relates to God as Father, and now you are united to Him. Therefore, in your union with Christ, you relate to God the Father as His Son does, and you are now a child of God. Does that make sense? Because you are now one with Christ, and He is the Son of God, that you relate to God the Father as a child of God. We're told here in verses 14 and 15 that you are a son of God. Now, we briefly touched on this at fall kickoff, because I know that this makes some of the ladies in the room uncomfortable. You're like, well, I want to be a daughter of God. And yes, you are a daughter of God. But remember, Paul is writing in this context to a first century Roman church. And in that time period, sons were given a superior, superior right and inheritance and privilege than the daughters. And so Paul wants us, every person who knows God as father, be male or female, to understand that your relationship to God is that like a son in this context. And, and I don't want you to feel like that is so uncomfortable that you somehow miss the glorious truths, right? Because I have to reckon with being referred to as the bride of Christ, adorned like a bride for her wedding day, and ladies in the room are, you know, sons of God, and we're just like, okay, we're not going to miss the glorious truth being communicated here by some language that, that might, you know, cause some, uh, some work going back into the context of what is being truly written here. That if you trust in Christ, you're a child of God. Now, I also think it's important here to remember what we once were. There's a common misconception in our culture that perhaps you have believed before, you do believe, maybe you've heard a friend say something like this, and the common misconception is that we are all children of God. Every person is a child of God. God is everyone's father. But what did Jesus himself say? When John 1.12, whenever there were those who were not receiving him as the Messiah, John wrote, 
But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How do you become a child of God? First, this this shows us that not everyone is, and that becoming a child of God is, is exclusive in the sense that you can only become a child of God through believing in Christ, and at the same time, it is available to anyone who believes in the name of Christ. But apart from Christ, we are orphans and enemies of God, not His children. And yet the glorious truth is that those who were once enemies and orphans can be adopted as His children. See, for us to fully understand the weight of having a new identity as God's children, we need to look at the way that the Bible describes who we once were. Ephesians 2, 3 says that by nature, by our sinful nature, we were children of wrath. Romans 5.10 describes us as formerly enemies of God. Romans 6.20 says that we were slaves to sin. Luke 15.4 describes us as lost sheep that were vulnerable and prone to attack. Isaiah 64.6 says that we were unclean in our sin and too far gone to clean ourselves up. The spiritual descriptor that hangs over our life apart from Christ is dead. We were stumbling down a path to hell with blistered feet and tattered rags, no righteousness to our own, and helpless in our state apart from God and separated from Him. That's who we were. Our story is not unlike the story of a woman named Stephanie Fast. Years ago, Stephanie's story was recorded by a Christian journalist. And I think it gives us some sense of what God has done for us. You see, Stephanie uh, was born during the, the Korean War era in Korea. Her father was an American soldier that was stationed in, in Korea for a little while, but she never met him. He, he left before she was even born, never had the chance to know her biological father. And so Stephanie grew up with her mother, but being of mixed race and having light, curly hair, she didn't fit in with the other kids, even as a toddler. Her mom faced a lot of ridicule as she was called names, and other people looked down on her because she just stood out in a crowd. Her mom could not handle the embarrassment and the constant ridicule that she had. And so whenever Stephanie was just seven years old, she did the unthinkable. She carried her into an unrecognizable part of their city. She sat her on the sidewalk and she left. She completely abandoned her daughter. And at seven years old, Stephanie had no one that claimed her, no one that called her child. And she tried to survive the best that she could, barely living off of garbage that she found or handouts from other people. She tells the story about even at seven years old having to survive by eating a field mouse that she found because her stomach hurt so bad. She was lost. She was alone. She was helpless and had no hope. And there was a nurse that found her one day as she was walking by. She found her laying on the sidewalk on the doorstep of death. She had cholera. So she nursed her back to health, and at nine years old, Stephanie was taken to an orphanage. And that orphanage, nine years old, she kind of did some responsibilities, not ever thinking that she would really have a home to belong to, a mom or dad to belong to, but was at least thankful to be able to survive. 
And Stephanie, in her own words, recounts the day that she met the man who would become her father. She heard that a couple was coming to the orphanage. She lays eyes on this man. She said, he saw me out of the corner of his eye. Now let me tell you, I was nine years old, but I didn't even weigh 30 pounds. I was a scrawny thing. I had worms in my body. I had lice in my hair. I had boils all over me. I was full of scars. I was not a pretty sight. But the man came over to me, and he began rattling away something in English, and I looked up at him. Then he took his huge hand and laid it on my face. What was he saying? He was saying, I want this child. This is the child for me. Do you understand that if you are a Christian, Stephanie's story is your story? That you were once filled with the worms of sin, completely helpless and hopeless, on the doorstep of eternal death, wounded by the consequences of sin. And God the Father stepped in through his son and said, this child, this is the child for me. Why? Because of no good that you did? Not because you're more righteous than anyone else. God loves you because he loves you. He set his affection on you because he chose to set his affection on you. Lest you think that this is only some New Testament truth, I want you to understand that God has always related to his people in this way. Flip back to Deuteronomy 7 and read this word to Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people, not because you were more beautiful, because you were better at following rules, not because of you that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. He showed that by sending his son for you. God's love poured out on you that you could be called an adopted child, no longer an orphan, and not in standing as an enemy, but received by God. And maybe you're wondering, how do I daily experience this love? How does that truth come to bear on my soul? That's one of the things the Holy Spirit does. Verse 14 says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The Holy Spirit now leads you. Are you being led by the Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit leads you to feast at God's table in His presence, not to be satisfied with field mouse on, a field mouse on the street. Are you led by the Spirit of God? Man, one of the things that was really encouraging to me this week as I was looking at this is that this term that is used for led here in verse 14 echoes the same term that was used in Exodus 4 whenever the Holy Spirit is leading God's people through the wilderness. Now, let me tell you why that is so encouraging to me. Because I often wrongly think that if I am being led by the Spirit, and I'm fully in the will of God, and I'm obeying everything that I should be obeying, if I'm being led by the Spirit, then I'll be completely removed from the wilderness. That there will be some sort of detour around whatever might feel like a wilderness in my life. And yet Exodus 4 and Romans 8 correct me by saying, no, often God leads you through it. Often God leads you through something that feels like suffering, through something that feels like difficulty, not so that you don't feel like you are in the wilderness, but so that you know the presence of God in the midst of it better than you would have if you were never there. 
What's your wilderness that it feels like maybe God's leading you through right now? Is it singleness? Is it disappointment? Is it a difficulty at work? Is it chronic pain? Is it a sin that is just kind of constantly at the forefront of your mind that you keep falling into? May you be led by the Spirit of God to realize you are a child of God and that you would cling to that hope in the midst of whatever it might be. I think the common question here is, if the Spirit is leading us, where is He taking us? If the Spirit leads, where are we going? In obedience to God the Father. That's what verse 15 tells us. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He leads you to cry, Abba, Father, to, to go into the presence of God in complete dependence. Now, I, I just really loved this part of this passage this week because there are two contrasts that are presented. And so he says that you, you have not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption to cry out to God the Father, Abba, Father. Now, the first contrast that we're given is the spirit of slavery. So being enslaved to sin and just feeling like any, um, you know, obedience to the law is just kind of done in duty, right? So there's the spirit of slavery, and that's contrasted with the spirit of adoption. You're loved by God. So with that contrast, contrast set up with those two opposites, we find ourselves looking for the opposite of falling back into fear. Because what does the spirit of slavery do? It, does, it, it falls back into fear. What does the spirit of adoption do? Well, I think at first I would assume that Paul would say, you haven't received the spirit of slavery to fall back into, adopt, or fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption to now be brave, to be confident, to be courageous, to be calm in the midst of pressure. And yet he doesn't say that. He says, you have received the spirit of adoption to cry out to God the Father, Abba, Father. What we find here is he, he is not saying that the spirit of adoption leads us to a complete absence of fear, but rather knowing who to cry out to in the midst of it when it comes. That's why he uses this, this term here, this familial term that Paul would have learned. I mean, this probably was one of Paul's first words in Aramaic, Abba. A little Hebrew boy would have learned whenever he doesn't know what's going on, doesn't know where his parents are, he feels all alone, he feels like he needs help. What does he cry out? Abba. Paul, wanting to include the Greek-speaking brethren here, says, Pater, call them both Abba and Father. God has his ear leaned constantly toward you, that you would know that you are spiritually adopted. And that as the Holy Spirit leads, what does it lead you to do? How do you know that the Holy Spirit is leading you? It leads you to cry out to God and realize your dependence upon him. Theologians, at least some, at least the right ones, argue that adoption is a truth that is even greater than that of justification. We never want to say that justification isn't this beautiful doctrine that we hold near and dear, that we are made completely righteous in Christ, declared righteous in Christ, and yet what do we find in adoption? J.I. Packer puts it like this. He says, Justification views God as judge. This free gift of acquittal and peace, won for us at the cost of Calvary, is wonderful enough. 
But justification does not of itself imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge. Adoption is a family idea, conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into His family and fellowship. He establishes us as His children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. Justification and adoption, they happen at the same time, and yet adoption communicates a closeness to God that we could never have imagined before. And yet sometimes we doubt it, don't we? Sometimes we might attribute a a posture that God has toward us where he's distant, he's got his arms folded, an attitude of whenever we come to him with our sins and failures, like he's just like, "Ah, again, we've talked about this before. And yet what does this passage teach us that we have new rights. Aspect number three, we have new rights as children of God. We have new rights. What is the first right that we see? That we now have assurance. Look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In Hebrew culture, for a truth to be attested to in the court of law, there had to be two witnesses. And so here Paul is saying, you personally, in your spirit, you know that God is Father, and the Holy Spirit in you is bearing witness to the fact that God is Father. So this truth should give you great assurance that you now belong to God, that the Holy Spirit is doing exactly what Jesus said that he would do, that he is comforting you, and that he is applying truth to your life to assure you that you belong to God if you do, and perhaps to convict you and to draw you to God if you don't. The second right we see is an inheritance. Right number two, an inheritance. On Wednesday night during our guys' time at Missional Community, as an intro question, we asked, what is the greatest gift that you have ever received? And there were some great gifts mentioned skis, you know, like a a really rare record. And then CJ says, well, when my uncle passed, he left me a 36-foot yacht. And we're like, okay, well, this is not a competition, but you win if if it is. Now, what does every inheritance, we're also planning an MC party to go out on this yacht now, um, what does every inheritance have in common? A couple things. One, you do nothing to earn it, and two, it's completely based upon a relationship. You do nothing to earn it, and it's completely based upon a relationship. And so Paul says, because of your relationship in Christ, who is the Son of God, you now relate to God who is Father, and you are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. The way that God views his Son and the, the things that exist in that relationship are now true of you. You have peace. There is no wrath for you. You have the ability to obey. You are full of joy. All of these things now characterize you. And yet he says this pales in comparison to the pinnacle of this inheritance. What is it? That you are heirs of God. You get God. He is your God. You belong to him. You have access to him that you could have never had before. So that whenever Jesus prays, our Father in heaven, he's able to pull you in alongside him with access to the Father. I've experienced this kind of relationship. Uh, Whenever Abby and I first got married, 
we went to visit her dad at work, and you should know that her dad worked in a pretty high-security place because he was a colonel in the Air Force. He was the commander of the AOC, and so his office was in a literal vault, like big round door, you know, thing that you turn, a literal vault. There were guards outside of the building where his office was. And so, to say the least, I was not granted access to go into that place. But you know who was granted access? His child. Abby could go in there anytime she wanted. And on our wedding day, something happened. The two became one. We were now united, and everything that was true of her then became true of me. I was able to walk into a place that was formerly off limits for me. And whenever a guard stopped me at the door and said, what are you doing here? I could confidently and honestly say, I'm here to see my dad. And he'd say, oh, I'm sorry, come on through. You have full access that was granted to me by the relationship of another that I was now united to. And the gospel is that you are now united with Christ to be granted access to God the Father, and you enter with confidence into a place that was formerly off limits so you can call God, the almighty maker of the universe, Abba, Father. This makes us a people who indulge this right. We can't get over this right. We keep talking to God throughout the day. We go to him. We can't help it but to cry out to God in our neediness, to cry out to God in thankfulness that we're constantly going to God the Father. Right number three, strength and hope. This is going to be like all of next week's sermon. We suffer with Christ. One day we'll be glorified with Christ. That's exactly what the end of 17 says. Right number four. We receive a forever family. In verse 12, Paul calls the church brothers. Verse 12, he says, so then, brothers. Now, I mean, remember what the church of Rome looked like. These were Jews and Gentiles. These were people who, from a religious background standpoint, had nothing in common. For many of them, they felt the racial tension that was present in being a church of Jews and Gentiles. I mean, the Jews were oppressed by the Gentiles and taken into exile. The Gentiles felt like, well, they they weren't originally God's people, so like, why, why do they even deserve to be there? And yet now they are all made one in Christ, so they relate to one another as brother and sister, because Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility so that Those who know God as Father know one another as brother and sister. Church, let me challenge you to apply this truth, that unity begins with you, that that community will take effort on your part, that living alongside other people that are in different life stages, have different economic statuses, education levels, ethnicity, will cause you to put your preferences to death for the sake of living out this truth, that the gospel is good news for all people. Paul experienced this firsthand whenever he became a Christian on the road to Damascus. And and the first thing that happens whenever he enters into the city is Ananias, a person who once formerly knew him as an enemy and an opponent to Christianity, puts his hand on his shoulder and says, Brother Paul, the gospel changed that entire relationship. Fifth and finally, we get Christ's righteousness. 
you now have a right standing with God, and you are able to call him as Abba, Father. But the interesting thing is the words Abba, Father, that phrase appears in Scripture before Romans 8. It appears in Mark 14, 36. And you know what was taking place in Mark 14? The Son of God was crying out in the Garden of Gethsemane before he would be crucified, saying, Abba, Father, if this cup of crucifixion and death, the wrath that is poured out on the entire world, if this cup can pass from me, then let it be. But your will be done, not mine. And we know that God did not remove that cup, but that it was poured out on Christ in full. That the Son of God was placed upon the cross, that nails were driven through his hands and feet. And whenever he cried out to God as Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His voice rang through the heavens. And there was no answer. There was silence. Because as Hebrews 2 says, he had a greater work. Christ was bringing many sons to glory, of which we are those children. He was forsaken so that you could be forgiven. He was abandoned so that you could be adopted. Look at what Christ has done, that he was pushed away so that you could be brought near, that he heard nothing so that you could hear the voice of God. And three days later, he rose again. And because Christ now lives, he gives life so that you have new responsibilities and the ability to carry them out that you now have a new relationship with God and a new relationship with others, that you now have rights that you could have never deserved and yet were completely given to you through the work of Christ. We are children of God. There is no greater identity. Let's pray.